Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, and we're going to resume our study of the divine institutions. Uh, there are multiple reasons for that, and uh, we've, uh, hopefully we recognize them easily. And so we're going back to what does the Bible have to say. Before we begin, now, let's take a few moments for prayer, present ourselves in front of the throne of grace, ask that the Holy Spirit will be our real teacher, and uh, let us pray that the Lord will just help us to understand and to remember and to properly apply, that's apply with wisdom, the things that we learn here today. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so thankful, we're so blessed to be part of your family, and Father, as, as we know, it wasn't any of our works that did it, it's about the work of your Son on a cross and our faith in Him. Father, that's what grace is all about, and we cannot thank you enough for it. So, Father, we pray that as we open up your word, you'd help us to understand it. We pray the Holy Spirit would enlighten us and challenge us, convict us where we need it. We pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, uh, there has been, in case you haven't noticed, there has been a massive attack on Christianity, uh, and it's been going on especially over the, about the last 60 years. And the uh, divine institutions that we've looked at, this is the way we've categorized them, is volition, which means that you have the ability to choose, you have the perfect ability to choose. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to choose perfectly, but we do have that ability to make the right choices and make the right decisions. With that should come responsibility, because we should be held responsible for our decisions, and yet uh, we find a world that is basically saying it's not your fault if you decide to do something wrong. It's all about the environment, the society. It's a matter of finding other people to blame other than ourselves. When Adam finally said, yes, and I ate, he was uh, recognizing for the first time the responsibility for the decision that he made to eat from the tree back there in the garden. And we should realize that. In the early chapters of Genesis that a lot of people say are nothing but a bunch of mythology, they do that to dismiss it because it, it is the book of beginnings and it establishes various things as established by God. And volition is right there. There was a test of his volition to begin with. The next thing we find out is that the, the Lord God had formed a woman and brought to the man as the husband and wife relationship. And it's um, one man and one woman, and that's clearly what it is. And that is under such massive attack uh, today. It, it's, I, I could not have imagined when I was a kid growing up what we would be facing today or the Supreme Court decisions that went along with that. I could not even imagine it because it flies in the face actually of science and in the face of reason. I picked up a book, I saw it advertised several times, called Dark Agenda by David Horowitz. It says, The War to Destroy Christian America. And um, it is a, an excellent book. Like anything else, it's like eating fish. you got to pull the bones out from time to time. But he has done an excellent job of describing uh, what has happened. And most of us, a lot of us live through a lot of these landmark decisions and through a lot of these events that took place. 
that uh, the old devil used to shape America to what it, what it is now with such chaos that is going on behind the scenes. And he's, he's done a, a good job going back to even before the removal of uh, prayer from the public schools where that came about. A lot of these things, as we go through it, we'll remember because a lot of us, like I say, live through it. Some of the things we didn't even know about, maybe too busy, too distracted, uh, working on other projects, other things taking our attention away. But we end up in a situation in America that is absolutely a mess. And it is a mess because the divine institutions of God have been attacked. It is a Marxist philosophy that is moved into the United States. And the Marxist philosophy is a win-at-any-cost philosophy. It's, uh, we, we have a concept, because we are Christian, of fairness. It just kind of comes with us. I think everybody, in a sense, does. But Marxism, Marxism doesn't. It's all about the end justifies the means. And whatever is right or good is what I define to be right or good. So we have an attack on everything. And some of these uh, Marxist act activists that have been given a voice have gone out and said, we want to destroy this structure. They say we want to burn it down. And it's not buildings that they're talking about. What they're wanting to burn down is the society that is here in the United States that was based and built on Christian principles, like it or not. And that's simply the way that it was put together. So they have gone after it and sought to uh, destroy marriage. They've sought to give you an out for your own decisions. How about family? What they want is just like going on and Russia, China, and a lot of places, they want to take your kids at an early age, and they want to take them and indoctrinate them. And uh, they seek to do that through the uh, schooling that is required by the government. They control the curricula. They control everything that is taught. And what is taught uh, conveniently excludes God because they want a separation of church and state, which is a wrenching out a context of uh, Thomas Jefferson's comments. I'm sorry, I have a wife that is sick, and I need to... Probably... Anyway, <clears throat> the, um, they have gone after the family and obviously the nation. They want op open borders, not just on this nation, but they want it on all nations. They want a one-world global government controlled by one group of people, the elitist. And, uh, you know, they're not hiding it. It's not like it's a secret society that's going on behind the scenes. They've been working behind the scenes, but they're out in the open with it. And that goes back a long way when they came out and wanted a, a global government. We, that should tell us real fast, when you read the Bible and accept the Bible as the Bible, then what happens? You find out there's such a thing as nations. There's going to be nations in the millennial kingdom and even nations in the eternal state in this new heavens and new earth. So God has established nations. So we find those four divine institutions under a massive attack. And what we've got 
started looking at is the husband-wife relationship, the man and woman, the male and the female relationship. And we've seen the responsibilities of the husband in Ephesians chapter 5. We have moved to 1 Peter 3 because he's going to talk to the ladies in the first six verses. And then chapter 7, he's going to put the hickey on the men. And it's just, he's got one verse for the men, but that's all he needs to say what he needs to say. There are going to be some things that are taught here that are not just for the ladies. They are for the men as well. Because as we compare scripture with scripture, we find out that there's certain things that we're all called to be, and that's what we find here. In the first two verses of 1 Peter 3, it says, In the same way, wives, submitting yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they shall be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, in that society, in that part of the world, women didn't have the right of divorce. They couldn't do it, really, under any circumstances. And so it was a, it was a, a problem. Now, as far as, you know, putting up with being beaten and things like that, uh, I don't think that was a, a part of this because there are higher principles, such as the, the preservation of life, that come into play. But he says that, the, Peter says, this is the best way to approach it. Approach a civil marriage relationship. He says, having observed your pure, respectful behavior. Now, it's not a guarantee that if you act all sweet and nice, that it's going to straighten your husband out. Not a guarantee at all. It's not the way it's designed. But what he's saying is, here are the basic principles, and here is a good way to be. We have a society that has tried to turn around the roles of men and women, tried to break down all those gender barriers. I read you the thing from UCO last week that just says, hey, let's just do away with gender. Let's live above gender. Well, how are you going to live above what God has ordained? Unless you think you're God, which is what Marxist philosophy actually does. But verse 3 says, and let not your adornment. This is actually stated in the form of a command. It's with the negative, the strong negative. It's, your adornment is cosmos. We get um, cos cosmetology out of this, this type of thing. It means adornment is looking at the outside. So he says, let not the outside uh, adornment, this external ad adornment, be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Okay, and he's writing again to the first century. He's dealing with a cultural issue here. And he says, when you dress up, don't... And he's not saying don't dress up. Okay, you'll notice this. Because some people take this in another passage and they read it and go, women can't wear any of this stuff to church. Okay, and they, they legalistically apply a lot of the wrong things. Now in verse 4 he says, but... And that's in contrast to the overt. Okay. So he's saying, lady, go ahead and dress up. Dress up for your husband. Dress up when you come to church. It's, it's fine to do that. But he says, don't let it be only that. But let it be, and the imperative here, if you're, you have the English version that's in italics, it's picked up the imperative from the last verse. It's carrying on that same sentence. So it's valid to believe those in italics there. It says, the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person is the word kryptos. I, we get apocalypsis out of this. It's the veil. 
the apocalypsis is to take the veil off of something like a bride after the pronouncement is made of a marriage. He said, let it be the, the hidden person, the inside person he's talking about. And then he uses anthropos, okay, human being, the hidden part of you as a human being of the heart, cardia, the center of your being. He's saying that don't just look good on the outside. Let it come from the inside out. Larry Crabb wrote a book a long time ago called uh, uh, Change and Being Transformed. Change from the inside out. Real change comes from the inside out. We can force ourselves to look a certain way, act a certain way, talk a certain way, but that's not real change. When God is talking about being transformed, he is talking about what goes on on the inside that comes out. And so he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality. Imperishable, when I run into these words, they, they, um, I, I try to go faster than I do. But every time I hit a word like this, I get stopped. And there are words that are like this all over the New Testament. Opthartos is the word. Used eight times. It's used in uh, Romans eight. Or excuse me, Romans one twenty three to describe God. It means incorruptible. Now that's a great quality about God, isn't it? He is not corruptible. He is not subject to evil. He is not subject to error. He's not subject to sin. So he's saying, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality, okay? Let it not be easily changed, swayed. Let it not be pharisaic and be hypocritical. Let it be real. He said the imperishable quality of a gentle, even, quiet spirit. Gentle is the word prous, used three times. It's used in Matthew 5, 5. It says, blessed are the meek. They translate it meek there. It's the word gentle that, that we have. In Matthew 21, 5, it's used to describe who Jesus is. So we get a picture of the three usages that is here, and Peter picks this up. Peter uh, heard, the, heard those in Matthew, and let it be gentle. And as we know, gentleness is a power under control. Of a gentle and quiet, and the, the Greek construction here says even. It's describing the gentle spirit. It is not gentle and quiet. Is a gentle, namely, a quiet spirit. Sukios uh, is the word translated quiet. It's only used twice. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And hopefully you know what that verse is. Hopefully you know the principle of that. To pray for those who are in authority. Why? So that we might live a quiet life and I have a feeling that maybe we Christians didn't do that enough over the last 50 years we didn't pray enough for those who are in authority it's a trans a tranquility that comes from within the word pneuma is the word spirit which is the human spirit and of course they People want to argue over what, you know, when do you get the human spirit? The fact is, as a believer, you got one. And the human spirit is uh, uh, there to, to go with us, a gentle and quiet spirit. It's coming from the inside. What he is 
what the encouragement is about is make it real. Make it real. Now, see, this is addressed to the ladies. And, but does it not apply to the men? Applies every bit as much to the men. But what he is dealing with in the first century is evidently some issues in households. And he's saying, hey, take care of this. Take care of this. The gentle and quiet spirit, which is present indicative of Imea, keeps on being precious in the sight of God. Now, precious is polytelase, only used three times, and it means of a great in polis means great, teleo means the end of a great end. It has great intrinsic value. Where? In the sight of God, before the eyes of God. So who's watching? Who's really watching? Okay. The Lord says, I want you to obey me and leave, leave the outcome to me. Okay. That's what he's saying. That's what he says to each and every one of us. The second principle that we learn from this paragraph If this thing will work. Focus first on the spiritual issues of life. Focus first on the spiritual issues of life. See, the first principle is to behave purely and respectfully. We covered that last week. Second principle, uh, ladies, men focus first on the spiritual issues of this life. Now, it's easy to, get, to focus on our facades. When we start looking at these words and how they're used, it's easy for us to focus on how we look. See, some people are more interested in the presentation than they are the content of what is, what is going on. And while we should be concerned about our presentation, and we should pay some attention to that, it is not unnecessary at all, uh, totally but the most important thing is what's really going on. <clears throat> what is the content? It's not the, the camera angles that make all the difference. What it is, is the content of what is, what is happening inside of us. Matthew 23. So if we focus on our facades, what happens? We often become self-righteous because we think we've got it all together. Matthew 23, I'm sure you remember that. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish. So he said, he said, Let it not be merely the external cosmetics. Let it not be merely the external, but the hidden person of the heart. The Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, and inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish. So the outside of it may become clean also. Even to you Pharisees, outwardly you appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What did the Lord jump all over the Pharisees about? They just wanted to look good. They offered long prayers in the marketplaces. They did everything they could do. Whenever they, they put money in the offering plate, they sounded a trumpet they rang a bell so everybody would know what they, what they were doing. And he says, I know what's on the inside of you. 
Inside, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. This is the Lord talking. So in the eyes of God says that he knows us from the inside out. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're doing. If we're trying to manipulate somebody or trying to serve somebody, he knows all of those things. Defilement starts on the inside of an individual. Now, since we're born with a sin nature, with the imputation of Adam's original sin, we're all, uh, we've all got a problem. There's a country song out now <clears throat> that I believe everybody is good or something like that. And every, most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I can agree with that second line. But the first line I have a problem with. <laughs> the first line, everybody is good. Excuse me. They haven't read the Bible, have they? That little cute tune that I can't get out of my head. Hope you don't hear it this week. I can't get it out of my head because I got these words going off in my head that are driving me nuts. Because some of the things that it says, you ought to be able to love anyone you choose. Obviously, in, including people of same sex. Also including uh, uh, multiple things that are attacks on divine institutions. And it's just a catchy little tune that hangs in people's heads. And defilement starts on the inside. That's what the Bible teaches us. And if we believe that there is a creator and he spoke to his creation, we should believe that his revelation of himself is fully inspired and therefore fully accurate. We should also believe that he's able to preserve it and bring it down to today so that we can open up his words and find out what he wants from us. And I believe fully. That's, that, that, that's called a hill I'll die on. I believe fully that the scriptures are direct revelation from God that he spoke through human beings in order to get them put into a book. Defilement starts on the inside, Mark 7, 15, when the Lord says there's nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him, but the things which proceed out of the man, that's what defiles the man. He says we're corrupt from the inside out, but we need the incorruptibility of God in order to properly deal with this life. Christian women should dress modestly and let their good works flow from a godly soul. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul weighs in on this. And he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves, cosmeo, one of the other usages, with proper clothing, <clears throat> modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. This is not at odds with what Peter said. He's saying, they're both saying, get things in the proper perspective. It needs to be the inside where the real beauty is found. Not desiring credit from humanity, but seeking to please our heavenly fathers, an important part of our growth. <clears throat> and None of us should do things just to be seen and noticed by other people. That's where we end up playing politics. And there's too much politics going on right now. We need to be a transformed Christian into the image of Christ and living our life accordingly. That's the way we need to live. That's what is the best witness for anybody, anytime. Now this includes our giving. Matthew 6, verse 3, when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. 
that your arm, alms may be in secret, veiled. And your father who sees in secret will repay you. He knows how much that you gave. He knows exactly. So why do you need to try and impress other people? Why do people need their names on buildings? Why do they need their names on hospital rooms? Why do they need their names on any of these sort of things? Well, do we want people to know it was us? But God knows already. Who's the one's going to reward forever for that? It's not mankind. Our prayers. Matthew 6. Here's the Pharisees once again. When you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I haven't seen anybody doing that lately. I think that would be really neat. Actually, um, he says, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. There's actually some people in a country, and I can mention the country, Myanmar, and there have been some films released about Christians getting together in the middle of the street and praying out loud. So far, it's cost over 700 people their lives from the military takeover. But they have come together to pray out loud because the takeover is a Marxist-Communist takeover. That's what they do. They don't want people praying at all, much less getting together to pray. And some people had the courage to actually do that. Why? One day all things are going to be known. What the Lord says in Matthew 10, it's enough for the disciple to become as his teacher, the slave is his master. If they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? He's saying, that's what they call me. That's what Jesus said. Therefore, don't fear them. For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim it on the housetops. The hidden things of mankind are going to be judged. What's really going on on the inside of humanity, it's going to be judged. Romans 2 also tells us that. But the good hidden things, see there's a lot of good hidden things that go on inside of Christians. But when it all comes out, there's going to be some reward. From 1 Corinthians 4, 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Wait till the Lord comes. Now when is this mess going to end? When the Lord comes. Can we solve it with elections, even fair ones? Uh -uh. It's not a political solution we need. It is a spiritual solution that we need on this planet. And that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we have renounced the hidden things because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He's saying that anything, the hidden things, he's talking about hidden motives of communicators even within the church. They have walking in craftiness. They're playing the game of the devil. And you say, how's that happening? How is it that 90% of the people that are going to churches don't know what they believe? How is it out of the 10% that do, 90% of those 
don't, don't know why they believe it. That's a problem in the church. Why is it that they don't know what's important? They'd rather major on the minors, like what kind of clothing you wear to Sunday service. Or what kind of vehicle you drive home you live in. Or how much you put in the offering plate. They'd rather measure it by all the outer stuff instead of the inside. Because the way God measures us is faith, hope, and love. That's the way he measures us. That's what makes a model church. The model church is not about the buildings. The model church is about the spirituality within that walks by faith. That, pro that produces loving acts that has a great hope that God is going to bring about his, his goodness. The pattern for incorruptibility is God. And thus it's unchanging. And it's enduring. From Romans 1.23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. As I read last week, they're trying to make provision now for people who are <coughs> feel like they're one with the animal world, and they're actually kind of they're they're kind of going back and forth between a, a person and an animal of some kind because they made that connection part of Native, Native American culture. Now, actually, what it is is demon possession. Let's just call it what it is. That's that's what it is, and I. I in a way, I've been blind to it over the last few years, and I kept thinking, well, these people are just crazy. And then I'm starting to realize, no, I think they're, they're demonic in some regards. I can't judge individuals, but when you look at some of the activities going on in what they call peaceful protest, it looks a lot more demonic than it does, just a matter of protesting things that one doesn't like. Now, <clears throat> the pattern is gone. 1 Timothy 1.17... <coughs> Now to the king eternal, immortal, that's a, immortal. There is no immortal word. <clears throat> Let's make it up and find a definition for it, though it sounds good. <clears throat> Incorruptible is what that word is. I am thankful I serve a God that cannot be corrupted. And what do you find out about all the ancient mythology and the so-called gods that are around there? They're all corruptible. They're all corruptible. What about one who views the government as a god? Because that's Marxism. What about the, you think it's not corruptible? It's not hard to find corruption at all. Thus, ladies should desire they, they become a gentle and quiet spirit. They're a human spirit. It's a calmness. It's a peace. It's a hope that they have. Our new birth is incorruptible. And some say, well, I can't, it can't happen to me. Well, guess what? You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is incorruptible. It's the same word that is used. Yeah, you've already got it. Because you have been, when you're born again, I'm so thankful that this born again is never going to die. The part of me that's born again never going to die. The old part is going to be cast off. That's what's going to happen. That part's going to die. When Jesus said you'll live even if you die, he's talking about physical death versus spiritual life. When he said those who believe in me will never die, he's talking about spiritual life. That's there. Not a contradiction of terms. It's just you have to stop long enough to understand it. 
Now, if we, if we become this way, where we become one with God in a sense, we're not going to do everything perfectly. We still have a sin nature. It's going to bring an incorruptible crown from 1 Corinthians 9. This is for us running in a way to win this race of life. And it, you win in the Christian life not by finishing in front of everybody else. You win in the Christian life by bringing in people along with you. That's how you win. That's the whole context of 1 Corinthians 9. Paul's using the Olympic Games to talk about. And he says, and he says I want to win, but who's the enemy? It's not flesh and blood. That's Ephesians 6. It's the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. It's going to bring an incorruptible inheritance. Beautiful how these things are, are used, isn't it? To obtain an inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled, will not fade away. Do you have something that you really loved 10 years ago and you don't know where it is now? Or it's worn out? Or if you take it, take it out and put it on your finger, you go, boy, that was nice a long time ago. But it's, it, it doesn't thrill me the way it once thrilled me. Not anymore. You know, when you get to heaven, you're going to pull out that, that uh, piece of gold and you go, wow, this is just as pretty as it ever was. Just as beautiful as it ever was. Means just as much to me as it ever did. The same thing with the silver and the precious stones. That's what's in heaven. It's incorruptible. You're going to have a joy. I think in the song, and there's joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about a joy that will never be taken away in heaven. Can you imagine that? Why can you imagine it? Because inside of you is that spark given with a new birth that is going to come about fully when you get your new body. So this new heavens and new earth that we'll be citizens in, it'll be something. We'll have an incorruptible inheritance and an incorruptible body. See the words used? It paints us a beautiful picture of what it means. And it's saying, ladies, in Peter's writing, ladies, you need to be this way, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he's not excluding the men. Once again, there's a, that balance that is put there. Gentleness is patterned after the person of Christ. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle <coughs> and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your soul. See, gentleness is power under control. Gentleness is being able to, to do something like a watchmaker. For a watchmaker to work on a watch on the inside, I work on a watch by throwing them away. Because I buy cheap watches. And whenever they quit, goodbye. But whenever you take it to a watchmaker, because it is a nice watch and it's valuable, you want one that's gentle. Right? You don't want a Black & Decker drill going into your expensive watch. You want somebody that's got the ability to look, the stability in their hands and everything, to be the craftsman that they need to be. That's gentleness. That's what it is about. And that's what we see the Lord doing. That's who He is. When He said, that's about the only thing He said about Himself, about His personality. I'm gentle. So when he calls the ladies to be gentle, what's it saying? Be like Christ. Be like Christ. If we get a better picture of him, we get a better picture of, of what we should be. The quality is promised in the eternal inheritance. Blessed are the gentle. 
for they shall inherit the earth. And the opposite of gentle is harshness. And that involves pushing one's own agenda. Pushing one's own agenda. Are we following, trying to follow the agenda of the Lord? A quiet spirit's one that has enough confidence in the Lord. There's no need or desire to argue. And it involves praying for it. We all need to pray for it. It involves not acting like a busybody. It's interesting about that word busybody. Right around that uh, love your neighbors yourself found the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 19 is, is within the first few verses there it says uh, do not go up and down as a busybody among thy people. Because it's obviously not a factor of loving one another. So the... Uh, you know, inquiring minds want to know. Maybe inquiring minds should back off from such things. And maybe we shouldn't be the ones carrying that around. Now, I've also seen that carried to the point whenever, <clears throat> whenever people need to know about other people and other people shut up when they shouldn't. And that's not balanced. There's a problem with that too. So when do you do that? When you talk about it, when you broach this, if you will, with prayer for wisdom led by the Holy Spirit. It always bugged me when I was in seminary. I looked for formulas for everything. Why did Paul sneak out of a window one time? And another time, he ended up talking in front of, a, of an arena. Because if he'd have been... God, why did he decide to confront his enemies once and run from them the other time? And I think it was the Holy Spirit leading him. Because if we're in touch, we'll know, I guess, the old gambler, when to fold up, when to hold up, when to walk away, when to run. It's no, no longer a gamble in life if we're following the Holy Spirit. So behave purely and respectfully and focus first on the spiritual issues of life. And it says in verse 5, For in this way, in the former times, the holy women, Hagias, the set-apart women, also, who hoped in God, El Pizzo, it's a present participle, the ones hoping in God. So it tells us what holy women are, set-apart ones, the one placing their hope in God, used to adorn themselves, cosmeo, same word that flows through here. The imperfect tense said it was a common practice of what they used to do. You know, uh, and he's going to go back to Sarah and Rebecca, and he's going to go back to them. Cosmeo, they, they used to dress up. That's what he's saying. Used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. But how did they adorn themselves? It was most important. Hupotasso, submitting themselves, arranging in, in order. So the third point, place your hope in God. Okay, who is, the, who is the real boss? Who is the real authority? Because can, can he administer discipline? He can do things that surely, but I look out here, I don't see any kids out here, and I look and I see older, seasoned veterans sitting out here. And I look out there and I go, somewhere along the line, you've been touched by a little bit of God's corrective discipline. Because I have. Saying, you don't need to go that way. Or you need to stop that. 
and you need to head and go another direction. Well, Abraham learned some because he says, as, you actually have just as in the English, and it's not a just as, it's not a kathos word, it's hos. As, in other words, there's an example being given here. It's not an equation or formula being given. Like, <clears throat> Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now, that's hupakuo. It's a word that means that she heard under his authority to listen and do. It says, calling him Lord. Now, this is a little L. Okay? Kurios is the same word used that we translate with a big L. Okay, calling him Lord. She didn't think he was Jehovah Elohim, not for a heartbeat. <laughs> but she, she called him Lord. And you have become her children, Sarah's children. Okay, the wives that he is talking to and addressing. And notice the word genomai is used here. It says you become something you've not, you're not. You haven't been because if you find yourself becoming <clears throat> something you haven't been, there's been a transformation. What was the transformation? The transformation with Sarah was from Sarai, a name that meant contentious. So she wasn't always Sarah, which meant princess. She wasn't always that. She was transformed. She was changed. She trusted God. She learned to trust God. If you're put into a harem of a king because your husband is a coward, then you pretty well need to learn to trust God. Is what you need to do. And she did. Not once but twice. And it says calling him Lord. And you have become Sarah's children. If you do what is right. Agathopoieo. Agathos is good. That's which becomes good. Poieo is a word that means to do. Without being frightened by any fear. So here is a, here's a beautiful quality of wives that can become Sarah's daughters. Now, not in a genetic sense, quite obviously, but in a spiritual sense. So Sarah's original name was Sarai, that means contentious. Now, <clears throat> this example is taken from Exodus, taken, not Exodus, Genesis 18, the first 15 verses. This is a, a beautiful picture because... <laughs> The uh, three unexpected visitors arrived at Abraham's camp. Two angels and the Lord. Took him a while to figure it out, but he figured it out. Three people arrived. This is the Lord in Christophany. He's manifested himself. Two angels. Because whenever those two angels leave, they're going to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord's not going down there with them. But they're sent down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So three visitors show up. Abraham looked at Sarah and said, go prepare a banquet for them, which she did. Okay? Go, go kill an kill a animal. Prepare it. Feed it. Make bread. Get them ready to go. <clears throat> That's like put together Thanksgiving dinner on the fly without any previous notice. Okay, that's exactly what he said. Go do it. And he'd said it, and if you read through there, you find out it wasn't, honey, would you make them something to eat? It wasn't the way he said it, okay? Did Abraham have his faults? We know he did. 
I once did a first-person monologue, I was trying to, of Abraham <coughs> uh, for a youth camp. And I dressed up like Abraham, and I'm going through there, and I went, <laughs> my coach, I said, uh, oh, let's see, Genesis 12, oh, he put his wife in a harem. <laughs> 13, he disobeyed God and took his nephew Lot. 14 was pretty good. He had a military victory. 15 was pretty good. 16 was Hagar. 17 was circumcision. 18 and 19 is Sodom and Gomorrah. And I said, <laughs> I said I'm not real sure how I'm going to present these, this to the kids at the youth camp. And my coach said, next time pick Daniel. <laughs> and I went, okay. We did. <clears throat> it was to, to try and put yourself in Abraham's shoes, and then also in Sarah. She did <clears throat> just what she was asked. She made a, a large meal for them. And while the men were sitting around eating, a promise was made to Abraham that he and Sarah would have a son next year. Now Abraham, see, was, was 99 years old, and he'd had a son 13 years earlier, called Ishmael. That's Genesis 16. So he'd had a, had a son, but it's, here's the promise to Abraham. A child will be born to you and Sarah this time next year. Well, Sarah wasn't present at the meal. And that's common custom in a lot of parts of the world. It's really hard for us gringos to go somewhere else where the, where the, the wife doesn't join the men at the meal. It's, it's difficult to do because we were raised differently. But that's the way they still do it in a lot of places. But Sarah wasn't present, but she was listening at the tent door. And she laughed at the statement and referred to her husband as her Lord. My Lord is old. And he's going to have a child. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you remember what happened? The Lord called her out on it. You remember that? Back in the tent? Sarah, why did you laugh? Well, well my husband's old. <laughs> that tells us a whole lot. <laughs> it tells us they'd not had sexual relations for quite a while. It tells us that uh, maybe they weren't even interested anymore it tells us a lot of things going on and I, and and she laughed at the lord and he called her on it and he and and see abraham laughed too but with the lord it was a whole different laugh see it wasn't the laughing the problem it was the it was the cause behind it and so she and the lord said sarah i'll be back this time next year and you and him will have a son and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. See? So that's a great story that is there. Now, she called him Lord. Now, let's, why did that get done? Because that's Sarah goofing up, isn't it? But what the Lord picked out was the good. And the good was, this, this was, she recognized him and the position that God had given to him. And she honored that. She showed respect for that by calling him. She didn't say, well, you're telling me that old guy? She didn't, but she put Lord in it. That's picked up on in, 
in uh, this passage here in 1 Peter chapter 3. And also uh, Hebrews 11 talks about it. Now, remember when Abraham told her to say he was a sister? When he went into Hagar and produced a child, his wife even encouraged him to do, to do that. But it's still wrong. He should have been a leader in his household and said, no, it's not going to happen. The Lord has promised me a son. Okay? And I'm not going to go into a handmaid to produce this son. Because you and I are the two that are married together. She is not part of it. So as a result, you get, a, you get a, another race and group of people that's half Egyptian and half Jew. That's going to be a thorn in the flesh to, to Abraham, even to the present day, the offspring. There had been no sexual... Abraham is not a perfect husband, but Sarah was full of grace. You see what she did? She was full of grace and honored her husband. So God honored her. Genesis 18. While we might be full of grace in some areas, we might be lacking in others. But the objective is to be gracious like God is gracious. So, <clears throat> principles that are there. Real quick, love God first, love your husband second. Display God's grace. Focus on good qualities of your husband. Don't nitpick him to death. And husbands, likewise, don't nitpick your wife to death. You know why? Because we're all flawed. We need to spend more time looking for the good things that brought us together to begin with. Accept the roles God ordained for both of you. Do good toward him and trust God to work things all together for good. Because if you love God, it says he will work all things together for the good to those who love him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. <clears throat> Thank you for your blessings, your tests, your opportunities. Thank you for your word. Father, it's so wonderful to be to come together and be able to open up your word and be encouraged and challenged by it. We pray that these principles will nourish our souls, that we might all become more Christ-like, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.